Please turn in your Bible, if you have one, to Acts chapter 15. That's where we're going to be sort of uh, situating ourselves this morning in Acts chapter 15. And the title I've given to this morning's message is Grace Alone. Grace Alone. That's what we're going to be finding this morning. Well, on the 15th of June in the year 1215, which was some time ago, uh, in Runnymede near Windsor, King John signed a royal charter known as the Magna Carta. And that document has since become one of the most celebrated documents in Western history, being as it was the first written material that uh, reigned in the powers of the English monarch and thereby protected the freedoms of the English people. And it, was a founda- it became a foundation stone, this Magna Carta, in Western history. And it went on to inspire the English Bill of Rights in 1689 and the American Declaration of Independence in 1776, both of which further defended the rights and the freedoms of the people. And the reason I start there is because Acts 15 has sometimes been described as the Magna Carta of the Bible, the Magna Carta of the New Testament church. This chapter lays down in pen and ink, and actually we'll see the the people in the chapter lay down in pen and ink for all to see this message of gospel freedom. They, They put down on paper that there is only one way to be saved, only one way to be forgiven, only one way to be brought into a right relationship with God. Only one way to be truly free, by grace alone. Now this, that, that message of grace alone, I know it's a message that we're familiar with here this morning, most of us. We, we celebrate this message of grace alone every Sunday together. We as a church hold tightly to it and we treasure it. It's even in our name, name of our church, so that we won't forget that we're here by grace alone. And yet what we're going to see this morning is that grace alone isn't always held so tightly as we might think. It has often come under attack both from inside and outside the church, but also really from within every human heart. As we'll see, the reason these events in Acts 15 had to take place and be recorded is that there were certainly people present in the early church who weren't so sure that salvation could be entirely by grace alone. By grace, yes, but by grace alone, some people weren't so sure. So the first thing we encounter here, and this is my first heading for this morning, is grace disputed. And if you've got Acts 15 open there, uh, just cast your eye back up to chapter 14, verse 24. We'll start there at the tail end of Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey. We looked at that last week. But they're now on their way home back to their uh, home church in Antioch. Acts 14, 24, then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. But some men came down from Judea. Now, what Luke doesn't do here is specifically spell out how far Judea is from Antioch. 
I guess because people at the time reading this, perhaps they already had a bit of an idea, but it was a good 300 miles away. So this is like us saying that some men came down from Newcastle to Bristol on foot, maybe on a donkey, with a message. Clearly these men had a real bee in their bonnet. They've come far. They clearly have a serious axe to grind about what they were hearing was going down in, in this place called Antioch. What is it then that had gotten them so worked up? Luke says, they came and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Here's what had gotten these men so worked up. That Gentiles, non-Jews, were becoming Christians by simple faith alone without also becoming Jews and being circumcised. Their issue, just to be clear, was not whether Gentiles could be saved. It was how they could be saved. And so it's the how of salvation, not so much the who of salvation, that had gotten these teachers so hot under the collar. They weren't denying grace altogether. They were simply insisting that grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone, was not enough. That grace plus something was required. Grace plus circumcision. Grace plus obedience to the Old Testament law. Well, Paul and Barnabas, they've met these men, they're listening. They quickly see this is a serious problem. Verse 2, Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, which is a polite way of saying they had a falling out. They fiercely opposed them. And we can get an idea of how fiercely they might have opposed them uh, by going over to Paul's letter to the Galatians, where he describes these same men, or maybe the same kind of men, Galatians 2 verse 4, as false brothers who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. This then is no idle debate. This isn't Christians uh, just chewing over a secondary issue on which they disagree. Paul and Barnabas recognized the very truth of the gospel and the freedom of the Christian are at stake here. This is heresy. Now, we might say, okay, this morning, you know, this is, it's an ancient heresy. The church dealt with it. They wrote a whole chapter about it. Uh, all is well. We don't need to think about it. But here's why this dispute is actually so relevant to us this morning. It's because it's never gone away. John MacArthur calls this the longest-running heresy in the history of the church and the most destructive. This teaching that salvation is by grace plus any kind of human effort. Many heresies come and go at different seasons. They kind of go in and out of fashion if you look at church history. But this one never goes out of fashion. This very same denial of grace alone is alive and well today, not just on the lips of other religions and false teachers, but actually in every human heart, even in, at times, our gospel-believing hearts as well. Now, we're going to think more of this morning about its remaining presence in our hearts. But for now, the first lesson to grasp here is simply that wherever grace alone is being disputed, challenged, or brought into disrepute, whenever anyone adds any human deed or religious ceremony or good work as an extra condition for salvation, 
it is deadly serious. It's not a minor disagreement. It is deadly serious. The truth of the gospel and the freedom of the Christian are at stake. People's eternal well-being and, ever, and their everlasting joy hangs in the balance. And we as Christians, we have a duty to stand up for grace alone and defend it. To, as it says in Jude 3, to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And so that is precisely now what Paul and Barnabas set out to do. With the whole church in Antioch supporting them, the church send Paul and Barnabas off now 300 miles in the other direction to Jerusalem to defend the gospel. So second heading this morning, grace defended, verse 2. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. So Paul and Barnabas, they travel up to the church in Jerusalem. It's kind of the flagship church, the home church. They're not there to ask whether salvation is by grace alone, but to talk about why it certainly is and to discuss together what they might do to protect the true message of the gospel. And what, so what then takes place, I think, is something like a courtroom drama. It's a church council, but uh, a bit like a courtroom drama. It's centered around three key speeches. And so you get these three great apostolic titans of the early church who uh, each in turn stand up and give a speech defending the message of the gospel. Uh, the first witness to take the stand is the apostle Peter. He's always uh, keen to get there first, so maybe that's still the case here. But Peter stands up and he begins by casting the churches and the council's mind back to Cornelius's conversion. You remember that non-Jewish Roman centurion who became a Christian back in Acts chapter 10? Now, we of course, and if you're like me, you have a really short memory anyway. It might feel like a long time ago, but it was four weeks ago that we looked at Cornelius. But for these folks, it quite likely was perhaps up to 10 years earlier that Cornelius had been saved, uh, between then and now this council being gathered. So the people there really needed reminding. Verse 7 Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. So what Peter does is he reminds them of three historical facts about Cornelius' conversion, all of which prove that he was saved by grace alone. First of all, he reminds them it was God who made the choice to send Peter to the Gentiles with the gospel. Secondly, 
God did so, so that, Peter says, the Gentiles might hear the word of the gospel and believe it. Uh, Not hear the word of the gospel, believe it and be circumcised, or hear the word of the gospel, believe it and do some kind of religious ceremony or any number of religious things. No, simply hear the gospel and believe it. And thirdly, the third thing Peter reminds them of is the ultimate proof that they were saved by grace alone. The moment they first believed was seen in the fact that God poured out his spirit upon Cornelius and his household. Just as completely and mightily as God had poured out his spirit on circumcised Jewish believers at Pentecost, so he poured out his spirit on uncircumcised Gentile believers in Cornelius' household, proving, Peter says, that their hearts had just been cleansed by faith, not by faith plus circumcision. So the example of Cornelius is compelling, but Peter's not ready to sit down just yet. Turning from that history, he now turns to address some of his listeners' hypocrisy. And this is where, for me, this began to get even more convicting. Verse 10 Now, therefore, he says, and he's addressing now those who have been teaching faith plus something. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Now, a yoke, as you might know, was the harness that they put on an ox in order to hook it up to a a heavy load so that it could bear a burden. What Peter wants to know is why, when these Jewish Christians have already themselves turned away from the burden of keeping the law, they've turned to Christ to be saved because they knew they couldn't keep the law themselves. They've run to Jesus. Well, why are they now trying to impose that same law, put that same yoke, that same burden around the necks of Gentile Christians? It didn't work for them, but they're going to put it around the necks of other believers. This is a bit like me giving uh, my kids a job to do that I've already broken my back trying to do for a long, long time, and I've given up because I can't complete it. And then I say, right, kids, now it's your turn to go out and break your back doing this job as well that you're never going to be able to finish. A job that they cannot bear the weight of, the burden of. Where, Where would be the love or the sense in doing that? And this here highlights another fundamental problem with this this false grace plus something gospel. Not only is it just untrue and potentially sends people to hell, but any time we try in any way to earn the smallest part of our salvation, it is a miserable, intolerable burden. No religious act, no human effort can ever save us or even contribute one tiny bit to our salvation. The the law cannot save us. Good works cannot save us. Circumcision, baptism, church going, quiet times, being nice to people, none of them can lift the smallest pinky finger in helping us get to heaven. As one old writer puts it, even if Christ be thought of as carrying us 999 miles of the way and something merely human be required for the last mile, this would leave us hanging in the air with heaven being still unreachable. But the freeing, glorious good news of the gospel, of course, is that Jesus doesn't take us just 999 miles of the way, but all the way. 
Jesus saves completely all who put their trust in him. He removes the entire burden of our sin. And so while relying on even just a little bit of works righteousness can be a miserable, intolerable burden, Peter, in contrast, sums up his own happy and unshakable gospel confidence in verse 11. Here's Peter's confidence. We believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. And so Jew or Gentile, rich or poor, respectable or rebellious, there's only one true way to be saved. But it's a sure and certain way and it is a burdenless way through the grace of the Lord Jesus. And there Peter drops the mic and rests his case. Hopefully, even in listening to that this morning, we begin to feel something of a burden lift from our shoulders. It's grace plus nothing that saves, not grace plus anything that we can do. Peter steps down and then the second witnesses take the stand. They're a pair this time, Paul and Barnabas. And maybe because they've already made their case to the Jerusalem leaders when they arrived, Luke doesn't tell us much about what they said here. All he says, verse 12, is that all of the assembly fell silent after Peter and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. You can just imagine, can't you, that Paul and Barnabas had so many amazing testimonies to tell of Gentiles who they had seen mightily saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, without a hint of any need for circumcision or any human effort. All oh, the stories they must have told. Paul and Barnabas stepped down, and then thirdly and finally, into the witness box steps James. James, the future author of the book of James, the half-brother of Jesus, and probably by this time, the leader of the church in Jerusalem. James begins by affirming what Peter's just said, but then he adds a whole other layer to it, maybe the most important foundational layer of all. Because James now proves from the scriptures that this had always been God's plan. This isn't something that's been sort of pulled out of the blue, this idea of salvation by grace alone and for Jews and Gentiles. No, James proves that it has always been God's plan to save for himself a people from all the nations. Verse, look at verse 13. James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon, that's Peter, has re related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree. Just as it is written, after this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. This was known from of old. And I say it was perhaps the most important bit of evidence that day, because then, just as now, God's word is the ultimate test of what's true. How do we know that salvation is offered to all people solely by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? How do we know it's not requiring even a single ounce of human effort? Well, the way that we know is because God has plainly told us so again and again and again. This book, the Bible, makes it plain across and throughout all of its pages. 
This book tells us repeatedly, nothing else is necessary for you and I to be forever saved. No surprises down the road. Forever saved, forever forgiven and eternally welcomed into God's family. Nothing else is required than simple faith in Jesus. And with that, James's evidence is also ended. We've got the Holy Spirit, Cornelius, many more Gentiles, and then the Scriptures themselves all agree salvation is entirely by grace alone. As uh, There was a book, wasn't that long ago, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That's the message of this day. The question I really want us to pause and consider at this point and take a bit of time on now is how much are we living in the good of this? How much are we here this morning living in the good of this? The apostles, they've each taken their turn to defend this gospel of grace alone. And certainly we ought to be prepared to defend it too. We've just been shown how we might do that in this chapter. But the first and most important place that we need to defend this gospel every single day is not actually out there in the world or even in the church. The first and most important place for us to defend this gospel is here in our heads and our hearts and our thoughts and our feelings. Uh, Because it is so easy, even as Christians, to lose sight of this completely grace-alone gospel, this this grace-given, blood-bought gospel freedom that has been given to us. It is so easy for us to lose sight of it. In Galatians 5 verse 1, Paul writes, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And those words are very rousing, aren't they? Very rousing. But one reason Paul had to write them is because we're all at risk of slipping back under this yoke of slavery so, so easily. Slipping back into some form of legalism or works-based righteousness. Robbing ourselves of gospel joy and gospel freedom. You just think about all the security measures we perhaps put on our homes these days to make sure nobody else robs us. And yet the most precious thing we have is most at risk of being robbed by ourselves. So what we want to do this morning is make sure we've got the the very best security measures. Let's make sure we're not robbing ourselves of gospel joy and gospel freedom. And the thing is as well, I think it's really so much harder to take this glorious liberating gospel out into the world and convincingly defend it before other people if our joy and our confidence is no longer in this gospel ourselves. If, if when we leave the house in the morning, our shoulders are still weighed down with the burden of feeling we have to earn God's favor. That's a really hard place to witness from and say, hey, do you want to hear some great news? Legalism trying to do anything to earn God's favor, is a joy killer. Legalism robs us of our ability to be joyful Christian witnesses, not to mention joyful Christian spouses, parents, neighbors, colleagues, and friends. Legalism makes for miserable Christians. And I really appreciate what Stephen Altrogi says here. He says, There are certain sins that I call happy sins, because even though they're wrong, they at least give you some form of pleasure. But being legalistic isn't a happy sin. It sucks the life out of you, drains your joy, and makes your relationship with God an absolute nightmare. And more than anything else, it's displeasing to God. 
And while you may know the technical dictionary definition, I'm beginning to learn that legalism and being legalistic is much slimier and more slippery. It shows up in odd places, unexpected and unwelcome. It slides into the nooks and crannies of my heart. It's an expert con man pretending to be my friend and convincing me to give up the free grace of God for a much heavier burden. The problem with this slimy, slippery enemy of our freedom is we might not always be aware that it's taken hold of us. So what I thought I'd do this morning is briefly share... 10 telltale signs of its lurking presence. I promise we'll go through these swiftly and briefly. Uh, But as I started to think, okay, what are the telltale signs of legalism? And I thought maybe, oh, let's do three, or or five's a good number. And then I thought, no, seven's always the one you're meant to go for, isn't it? And the list kept growing, sadly. So I thought, just go for it. Um, And I'll share the signs. Now, uh, I was thinking this morning, as a kid, maybe the older folks amongst us can relate to this. You remember when the top 10, uh, the charts was on the radio? Was it on a Sunday evening? Saturday or Sunday evening. And um, those of us who particularly didn't want to spend money on music, we'd sit there with our tape and uh, maybe just particularly record the top ten. And you might be sat here this morning thinking, well, I'd really like to uh, record this top ten. Uh, and maybe you're starting to get your cassette tape out. Don't worry. Uh, I've put a link in the e-bulletin this week with the slides. So anything coming up on the screen, you'll have in the e-bulletin. Uh, so you can, re- you can catch up with the top ten when you get home. Um, Okay, so here are the telltale signs that we are not resting in grace alone, but we are starting to drift back under a yoke of slavery. And I'll share the ten, and then we'll go to the one all-sufficient remedy. And again, you might not have all of these, but just ask yourself, do you have any of them? If you do, then like me, you need to take your gospel medicine again this morning. Symptom number one, and these aren't in any particular order. Symptom one, we believe God loves us, but don't believe he likes us. Or to put it another way, we feel like God is never happy with us. When we picture God's face looking down at us, we picture a disapproving, disappointed, frowning face. Yes, we know that technically he accepts us because Jesus died for us. Okay, he kind of loves me. But at best, we figure he's really just putting up with us and he doesn't take any fatherly delight in us. Symptom number two, we frequently compare ourselves to other people. And we do this whether to make ourselves feel better, like the Pharisee in the temple who compared himself to the tax collector so he could say, oh Lord, I thank you that I'm not like this man over here. Or we compare ourselves to make ourselves feel worse as we wallow in the thought that other people, they're all doing a better job than I am as a Christian. Symptom number three, we live with a constant sense of guilt and failure. Maybe especially from feeling like we're just not doing enough for God. Not enough serving, not enough praying, not enough Bible study, not enough evangelism. It's not just that we'd like to do more, but that we feel so guilty that we haven't been doing enough. Symptom number four, we misuse the spiritual disciplines. That's a a term to describe things like Bible study, prayer, church attendance, uh, fasting, other things as well. We change what are meant to be means of experiencing grace into means of earning grace. So we think, because I've done my quiet time this morning, God is going to bless me today. Or because I missed my quiet time this morning, God is going to punish me today. 
Symptom number five, we're more intent on doing things for God than we are about spending time with God. Just think about the contrast between Mary and Martha. Um, uh, One of them serving, and serving is good, but time with Jesus is always better. Symptom number six, we criticize others for not living up to our standards. Whether it's the other Christians, they don't spend their money like me. They don't eat and drink like me. They, They don't dress like me or choose entertainment or avoid entertainment like me. It's so easy to impose our own man-made standards onto other Christians and then critique them for where they don't meet our standards. Matthew Henry once said, There is a strange proneness in us to think that all do wrong who do not do just as we do. Symptom number seven. We're better at giving criticism than encouragement. We're better at spotting what's wrong in other people than what is right and commendable, and an evidence of God's grace. And I feel so convicted in this one, especially as a parent. Symptom number eight. When we sin, we feel like we need to punish ourselves and like we need to make amends to God. We, when we sin, we feel like we need to do penance. We need to make it right with God. We need, we need to put it right. Rather than What we should do, which is simply confess and repent and run to the one who's already borne the full punishment for our sins. I mean, why are we trying to pay for our sins when it's already been done in full by Jesus on the cross? And rather than running to the one who's already made amends for our sin to a degree which we can't possibly begin to imitate or imagine. Symptom number nine, we struggle to confess sin and we become defensive when others point out our sin. And this is Perhaps, probably, because we're trying to maintain the illusion that actually we do have our own righteousness. And it's a fairly impressive righteousness, even though it's as convincing to everyone else as the emperor's new clothes. We struggle to confess sin. And then symptom number 10, we consistently lack joy. Here's Stephen Altrogi again. He says it's impossible to be legalistic and joyful at the same time. Joy comes from knowing that your sins are forgiven. Misery comes from trying to earn God's forgiveness. Legalism is the thief of joy. Now, I don't know about you, I can testify to that. There is no greater destroyer of joy in my life each day than my proneness to indulge in legalism. It's not the circumstances of my day that get me down. It is losing sight of the sheer wonder of God's grace. Now, I have to say, writing that list, sadly, was not difficult. I only had to largely just pull the lid back on my heart, look down into the swirling cauldron of legalism that still lies within, and then put pen to paper. And maybe you could add to the list as well from your own experience. I struggle with all 10 of these symptoms on a depressingly regular basis. But what about you? Do you detect at least some of these symptoms in your life as well? Let's not be afraid to own up where we see it. Maybe the only thing that would stop us from owning up is legalism anyway. So let's humble ourselves and and admit where we've got this. And then let's confess it where we see it to God. Let's ask for his forgiveness and then let's simply ask him. This is the whole solution. Ask him to help us repeatedly apply is one all-sufficient remedy, and that remedy is to drink deeply from his gospel of grace. 
One more time from Stephen Altrogi. This is all from one article which I found so helpful. He says the solution is to constantly, consistently, relentlessly look to Christ and his finished work on your behalf. At the risk of oversimplifying, the solution is always and ever the gospel. To be free from the poison of legalism, you must drink drink deeply of the antidote of grace. And this deep drinking must happen on a constant basis. The the instructions on the bottle that, that, that... God gives us, you know, like when you get it from the chemist and there's, there's the dosage instructions, how often to take it. The instructions on the bottle of the gospel is drink this continually. It's not something we need to ration or be careful to overindulge in. Uh, oftentimes in the morning, if I can find it in our fridge, I love a glass of chilled orange juice. But I'm always careful. I pull out a small glass because I know, okay, it's oranges. And I know some of us count that as one of our five a day. But I'm also told it's full of sugar and too much of it is bad for me. And so I'm taking it in moderation. But the gospel's not like that. Here we can't get too much of a good thing. We can drink down the gospel by the glass full or the tankard full or by the ocean full. And the more we drink it, the more good it will do to us. And, and let's praise God this morning. Like some, unlike some medicines, it's not a bitter pill to swallow. It's not castor oil or some weirdly flavored penicillin that not everybody likes. God's remedy is the sweetest, most refreshing, life-giving water that we will ever taste. It reminded me uh, of this water that C.S. Lewis describes in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, one of his Narnia books where sailing, and they're getting closer uh, towards the borders of Aslan's country, the travellers find a sea of water so sweet that they describe it as liquid light. And it makes those who drink it grow younger as they drink. The, The gospel is like that. It is like liquid light for our souls. The gospel is the most powerful soul medicine in all of the world. Assurance of freedom is found in this grace alone gospel. Relief from every guilty burden is found in this grace alone gospel. Release from all fear and anxiety is found in this grace alone gospel. The joy of knowing we're forever forgiven is found in this grace alone gospel. As the old hymn says, my sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin not in part but the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. Let's then be taking the stand in the courtroom of our own hearts every day, defending this gospel just as Peter and Paul and James did, arguing first and foremost with ourselves. Okay, So if you hear uh, your, your family member now in the bathroom and they seem to have an argument with themselves, it's okay, this is what's happening. They're arguing with themselves for the absolute irrefutable truth of this gospel of grace alone. And then out of that renewed place of gospel joy, out of that renewed place of gospel freedom, we will be much better prepared to both defend this gospel and deliver this message of grace to all of those that we happen to come into contact with that day. Grace disputed, grace defended, and then it's time finally for grace to be delivered and displayed. That's the third heading this morning. Grace delivered and displayed Watertight arguments have been given. Uh, The case for grace alone has been defended and made. But there's still one more thing that needs to take place now in Acts 15. 
This grace alone message now needs to be delivered to all of the people, especially those that have been troubled by false teachers and troubled by this legalistic grace plus something teaching. And so James continues, verse 19, Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. Here comes the Christian Magna Carta. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who were of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions... It has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements." that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. The apostles in this letter, they could not be clearer. No one should impose any further requirements on the Gentiles to be saved. It is faith alone, grace alone. The only thing that They add here, that James adds here, that his Gentile readers would do well to abstain from is a few particular practices. Now now here he's not trying to sort of come in the back door and rob them of their gospel freedom or suggest that anything else is necessary for salvation. No, what he's now doing is simply encouraging them to use their freedom, as Paul says in Galatians 5, not as an opportunity for the flesh or for selfish reasons, but to love and serve other Christians. And one of the things he he says to abstain from, of course, is an abiding rule to avoid sexual immorality. But with the other three things he mentions, he's simply doing what Paul does in Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8, encouraging these Gentile Christians to have care and respect for their weaker brothers. Of course, the Gentile Christians, they're ultimately free to eat whatever they like, as are the Jewish ones, but for the sake of love, And for the sake of unity and the sake of fellowship, the Gentile Christians would do well to abstain from certain things so as not to cause unnecessary offense to Jewish Christians. And and he points out these Jewish Christians, they've been going into the synagogue all their lives, hearing it taught that certain things shouldn't be eaten. It's displeasing to God. Now the old laws, they've changed. The food laws have been lifted, but consciences don't change overnight. And so James appeals to the, to the Gentile Christians not to add anything to the gospel, but to freely give up anything that will trouble their brothers. Otherwise, these Jewish and Gentile Christians, they're going to find it hard to eat a meal together or even being in a, be in a church together. Uh, now, just quickly, one way we might apply this 
would be in giving up the freedom that we have to drink alcohol as Christians in moderation for the sake of having another Christian over for dinner or over into our house, spend the evening with us. And for whatever reason, they don't feel that drinking alcohol is something that could be pleasing to God or right for a Christian to do. The way to deliver and display grace that evening would not be to flaunt our freedom, either try and pour it down their necks or or kind of drink our big glass in front of them. No, the way to preserve and display grace would be to abstain from drinking ourselves that evening. And that's because, and here's the point of this, wherever the gospel of grace reigns in our lives, it ought to create Christian unity and fellowship, not destroy it. It ought to draw seeking people in, not repel them. And it ought finally to create joy in the lives of the people to whom we deliver grace and display grace, as much as that's in our power. And that's certainly what now happens. Look finally at verse 30. As Paul and Barnabas set out to deliver this letter to the Gentile church back in Antioch, what happens is joyful celebration. And so... When they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. There's the happy result of this gospel of grace. When we we as Christians commit ourselves to defending it and delivering it and displaying it, joy and peace should follow. Encouragement and celebration should follow in our homes and in our church, in our workplaces and in our neighborhoods. Wherever this gospel of grace alone is defended and delivered and displayed, it should bring joy and peace and encouragement. So would you pray with me now? Let's pray that this gospel of grace, grace alone, would have its effect on our lives and through us in turn bring many other people to joy and freedom as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Oh, Father, we thank you that salvation is by grace and grace alone. We thank you for the freedom and the relief that knowing that brings. And Lord, our prayer this morning is that you would renew our confidence in this gospel. Please lift those self-imposed burdens of legalism that we're so prone to placing on our backs each day. And Lord, we ask that you'd help us instead to live and swim and drink deeply of your message of grace. May its daily effect on us be an abiding confidence in Jesus, a youthful Christian joy in our hearts, and may that joy be one that spills over into passionately defending, delivering, and displaying this grace alone gospel to all of the different people that you have placed in our lives. And may it in turn, we pray, lead them to an abiding faith in Jesus themselves and bring them everlasting freedom and joy. Amen.